everything, Andy. Plenty going on right now in the Twilight Zone that we don't know anything about, and I think we ought to stay clear. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and it's going to get eerie today, that's for sure. We're going to talk us some Roswell, the Roswell incident celebrated over 70 years now worldwide. And also, there was a bit of an interruption in the flow of knowledge to the public, and we'll discuss that aspect of it as well. But first, Let's talk to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today, sir? Doing very well. I've uh, wrangled everyone for today's show. We should definitely get into it. Well, very good. Keep them <laughs> doggies in line. And, <laughs> and that has a certain southwestern flair to it. That's uh -huh. where our minds are going to travel today to, to New Mexico, specifically the outskirts of Roswell, New Mexico. Suzanne, you and I have been on air at KKNW for 13 years, and it just so happens, which I found out only this morning, coincidentally, this wonderful book that we're going to discuss and the implications of the Roswell incident itself. 73 years on, the book itself, Witness to Roswell, has been around and durably a bestseller for 13 years. How about that? Today's lucky 13 day. And our guests have not always been on together with us, but for each of them, this will be their sixth time. Oh, great. So I think we had on one guest one time, one guest another time, and mostly we like to talk to them together. Did you want to do the mad prop so we can get these fine gentlemen on the air? Uh, you know, there's a real tiny version and there's a real long version, and I'm just, uh, I think I'll just cut down a little bit of the long version. How's Go that? Uh, alphabetical order. Thomas J. Carey, a native Philadelphian, holds degrees from Temple University and California State University, Sacramento, and also attended the University of Toronto and its PhD program in anthropology. An Air Force veteran who held a top-secret crypto clearance, Tom Carey is now a retired Philadelphia-area businessman. He's also been a mutual UFO network state section director for southeastern Pennsylvania from 1986 to 2002, a special investigator for the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies from 1991 to 2001. And there's so much more to be said about this man, but let me go to Donald R. Schmidt. He resides in his native Wisconsin on a 45-acre ranch located just outside Milwaukee in a little hamlet called Hubertus, if I'm saying that right. Don possesses a bachelor's degree from Concordia University and has taken graduate courses in criminal justice at St. John's University. He's worked for the U.S. Postal Service, a talented artist. He has also freelanced as a medical and commercial illustrator, possessing a fine baritone voice. Don Schmidt also sings publicly for special occasions in the Milwaukee area. He is the former director of special investigations and co-director of the J. Allen Heideck Center for UFO Studies. And much more to be said about him, which we will learn. Um, we are welcoming back for the sixth time Tom Carey and Don Schmidt. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, gentlemen. Good to be back. Thanks nice to be with you, uh, Gary and Suzanne. 
and wonderful for us as well. I have a couple of anecdotes, one each for these gentlemen. Suzanne and I were on the road going up the East Coast all the way to upstate New York. This was back in 2013. And we stopped in Craigsburg, West Virginia for the night. We'd gone as far as we could go. And so we stayed there and went down for our complimentary breakfast the next morning. And they had the TV on. I believe it was the Travel Channel, if I recall correctly. And Lord, I'm munching on my omelet. And I look over at the TV. And who do I see but the charming face of Donald Schmidt being interviewed in Roswell there. And I'm doing one of these things. I know that guy. Yeah, every I know that guy. We have this radio show. I know that guy. We've interviewed him. I've met him. <laughs> and we were pretty tickled to see Don Schmidt up there on TV being interviewed about Roswell near the time of the anniversary of the Roswell incident. That was really fun for Suzanne and myself. And then when it comes to Tom Carey, we had an interview all set up. We did our prep. He has so many facts at his fingertips. You, you ask him any question, he'll have the answer for you pronto. And Tom Carey is there at home. He's got his gear all set up. And wouldn't you know, we just got blown off the air. The, the cover story is that it was bad weather that knocked over a tree. But when it happened, Tom, I was saying, damn the CIA. <laughs> they don't <laughs> want really, the story. It really out. happened. It really happened. Big tree. Yeah. It was a big tree. We had a storm and uh, a couple houses up the block. Uh, the, the roots got soft and uh, dislodged from the substrate. And uh, it was a huge tree, and over it went, and it took all of the power lines. And uh, it took me a couple minutes to figure out that I was talking to myself. <laughs> that is amazing. So we, we, and we rebooked, and you were kind enough to make your time available, and we did a wonderful hour together. And Donald Schmidt, I'm so proud of the fact that we were able to, it took some planning and some foresight and arranging for us to get out to Phoenix, I think about nine years ago. And we had the opportunity to make your acquaintance up close and personal at a really well done event. They have this, this convention, the UFO convention out in Scottsdale, Arizona annually, I believe, a UFO Congress is what they call it. And we got a chance to meet with you and just talk about all the stuff that gets ufologists excited. That was a lot of fun for us. I do recall that. And that particular conference is now moved into Phoenix. And I believe uh, prior to was always in February, and now it's in uh, September. Oh, okay. So, so normally it would have been, we would have even, uh, it would have uh, already happened earlier this month, but uh, it's now Phoenix and uh, September. And I think one of the reasons they chose September, it's still plenty hot there, but I think they wanted to get out of monsoon season. <laughs> yes, yes, you're <laughs> absolutely correct. Well, I want to congratulate you guys because Witness to Roswell has been one of the most successful UFO treatises for 13 years. And Especially, I am proud to know you both because it's apparent to me that Witness to Roswell was written as professionally and in as well-researched a manner as possible, as opposed to a lot of books you see out there that are written, shall we say, for a popular audience, and yet the facts are kind of shaky, the narrative doesn't really fit. I have never been able to say that about you gentlemen, so way to go. Well, thank well, you, truly. Thank you. 
Well, you know, I just wanted to remind both of them, every time I, I see the words J. Allen Hynek, I get all, all kind of uh, warm and fuzzy inside because he was my teacher at Northwestern. He taught science for non-science majors. So everything that I know about the universe came from J. Allen Hynek. And I always <laughs> like to just bring that up for my own bona fides for the hour. Well, then <laughs> I think Tom would... Uh... Would, would chime in. What is your current impression then of the History Channel Project Blue Book series? You know, yeah. we didn't see the whole thing, but we saw bits it's, and uh, pieces of it. It's hugely, it's hugely disappointing as these uh, many. Well, Tom, we're asking Susan. We're asking Susan as a former student. No, that's it. We haven't seen as many episodes as maybe we should have, but I think Suzanne and I shared the opinion that it seems like they got a lot of drama stuck in there you right. don't know that it really happened that way it's about 10 percent truth and 90 percent fiction <laughs> well there you go <laughs> that's, that's the best that, that's the best i can describe it uh and that's with the heineck family involved wow yeah yes uh uh it's uh i think it, the show is set yeah, i think it's in like 1952 going forward and they're doing a retrospect investigation originally of Roswell but I'm thinking what what case are they talking about here because uh, uh, it's certainly not the case that Don and I have written written about uh, so uh, it, it, it's not as bad as what was that one uh, uh, Roswell High School about 10 years ago that was terrible oh. well, that was I would have preferred the... Archie and Jughead right right you know, interestingly enough, I'm, he he had a wonderful sense of humor, and the way he taught this class, especially to non-science majors, was to make it entertaining, interesting, and awe-inspiring, especially when he was talking about how far the planets were apart. And uh, the I first was several... just going to ask you about he, that, Suzanne. He did, did that. He, he, did he, he use the the playing card analogy, or did he use the toilet roll of toilet paper analogy? Well, it was it was a lot bigger than a roll of toilet paper, but it was a <laughs> roll of paper. And I can remember the first few planets were just a half inch or an inch from the blackboard. But by the time we were getting to the outer planets, he was outside the lecture hall, down the stairs, and crossing into the street in front of the Technological Institute. And you're all following him. Uh, no, there were hundreds of people in the class, but there were a few followers who wanted to know how far it was going to go. And I think he ran out of paper before he, he got to the paper he, before the end of the planets, uh, for sure, because they would have been miles away from uh, the blackboard. But I have to say, and this is what I wanted to just throw in here. When he was talking about Project Blue Book, he became really passionate, and it was one of the few times I saw him actually angry, yes, An yes. angry at how it was whitewashed. And he was telling this group of mostly liberal arts majors, um, you know, it was true. It was true. They're really there. They're really here. They have visited us. And he said from all, all the accounts that, that he took and all the people he spoke to, even though he himself was not a firsthand witness, he said, uh, I can tell you right now, uh, don't believe the government when they say it never happened, because it did. And, and that's when I saw him mad. And he experienced it, it uh, firsthand. Uh, as 
you mentioned in speaking to so many witnesses and so often he would encounter, to use that word, both military and civilian pilots. And he would hear some of the most profound daytime observations, multiple witnesses, radar tracking, uh, just no doubt they were uh, observing some uh, advanced technology. And he would get back down to right path at the Project Blue Book, and he would expect to see those reports. And month after month, nothing was ever there. So he quickly realized all the hardcore cases, all the good cases were not going to Blue Book. And that's where his anger, you know, was often directed at the military, at the government, in the sense that you have me hired on as your chief scientific consultant, and you're not allowing me to consult on anything. You're not providing me with access to the actual legitimate data. And the fact that the skeptics still point at Blue Book, well, that it was the, the principal primary UFO investigation of the UFO phenomenon. It was nothing more than a PR front. Heineck, you know, stood up above all that and, you know, championed the cause of the fact that we indeed, ladies and gentlemen, are being visited and they're not from Texas, as one of the Rouser witnesses said in the past. Huh. Very good. There are so many spurs on this trail that we are walking, the four of us here, and we'll get to as much of it as we can. Suzanne, you had a point. Yes, I did. And that was in the times that we have talked in the past, because we were we got this a book, uh, you know, pretty early on. It was written in, in the original 2007. We got the updated one in 2009. Gary and I have both read it. When we have had you on from time to time, um, one of the things that comes up all the time is the people who were actual witnesses and all of the first-hand folks are dying off, and so it, it, the job becomes harder and harder and harder to verify. And so is there anything new with Roswell that has come up uh, in the last few years? Well, certainly uh, we've, never, we've never stopped our investigation but uh, uh, to answer your question, Don and I talked about this a few days ago of how many firsthand experiencers, firsthand witnesses to this case were still alive. And uh, we, could, we could come up with, we thought, three. Uh, one was a pilot on the uh, famous uh, flight of the, the bodies to, uh, from Roswell to Fort Worth in uh, July 9, 1947. His name was Arthur Osipchuk. Uh, another was a uh, MP that came down from Colorado, Fort Simmons in Colorado, to guard the hangar. And the third one was a fellow who uh, was in uh, stationed at Roswell, and he accompanied the bodies from the hangar to the, the base hospital. So we did some checking, and it turns out that uh, Arthur Osipchuk uh, died a year and a half ago. We didn't know about it, but uh, we, we did find out that he passed away a year and a half ago. The MP from Fort Simmons, who also lived in Roswell when we interviewed him a few years ago, uh, I remember he wouldn't let us in the house, so uh, we have a picture of him standing in the doorway <laughs> being interviewed. He passed away, according to his brother, and the only one that's still alive that we know of is a fellow named uh, Elazar Benavides. He was a 19-year-old uh, 
1947, and uh, he was called to guard the hangars uh, where, where all of the wreckage and the bodies were initially, initially taken. And he got there, and uh, one of the officers had totally lost it, having viewed the bodies. He, he, re, he told us that he saw this officer. They were trying to, you know, uh, control him and calm him down. He had lost it while uh, viewing the bodies. And so they grabbed him and said, okay, we want you accompany this uh, little this little group here with these bodies uh, that were going over to the base hospital. And so uh, he did that. He described what the bodies looked like, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we interviewed him several times, and uh, as recent as uh, 2015, so that's five years ago, he was still coherent. We, uh, we interviewed him for one of our shows, but... Uh, in uh, following up this year, just actually a few weeks ago, we found out that he is in uh, Roswell, but in a nursing home with Alzheimer's. So he's beyond no. uh, being, being wow. interviewed. So, so there may there may be you know a few out there, but we don't we don't know of who they might be. But those are the last three we were aware of, and only one is still living, but he's got Alzheimer's. This underscores the incredible value, inestimable, really. The value of what you and Don have done over the years and continue to do. Let me give you, uh, give our listeners certainly a bit of context here, and then I would love for you gentlemen to respond accordingly. And this is one of the great contributions of your book, Witness to Roswell. It's just chock full of wonderful information that is thoroughly researched, but then there's a bombshell near the very end. And I say that against a backdrop. Watching these shows now and again about UFOs, they get to be a, a bit humdrum because it's old information a lot of the time. And then you have to have your guaranteed skeptic. And I'm not against balanced journalism or reporting. I'm really not there. But it's good if somebody actually knows what they're talking about. If they're going to be skeptical, just, just don't throw mud. That's more like what a debunker does. There is this man, for, I believe he's former Air Force, and you both will be quite familiar with him. Is his last name pronounced Magaha? <laughs> yes. You know who I'm talking about. And yeah. a show well, that we, I saw a couple of months. We just call months. him Ha Ha. Okay, well, Mr. Ha Ha, there was there being interviewed, and then he w went on a recitation of all the reasons why Roswell didn't happen. And then he concluded with, there's nothing there. I think he even intimated that, you know, people around there know that the evidence is so flimsy that the bottom line is, there's nothing to it. That was what he said. There's nothing to it. And I thought, and I instantly went to witness to Roswell. Okay, this is this to me is the touchstone. There, and in your book, you have on page two hundred and fifty-one of the soft cover version in my possession. You printed what a marvelous contribution to ufology. You printed the sealed affidavit of Walter G. Hot H A U T, dated December twenty-six, two thousand two, and this was sealed until his death. And I thought to bring this home that if you read this affidavit and you understand the context of it, it is incomprehensible to me that any skeptic or so-called skeptical researcher could look at the Roswell incident and say flatly that there is nothing to it. Well, Tom did uh, the weekend of Art Bell's last uh, broadcast when he was still doing the Art Bell show. And uh, Tom could recount how it was Walter's statement that finally 
brought him off the fence. That he finally was convinced that Roswell indeed was a actual recovery, retrieval of a crashed flying saucer. I know George Nori felt the same way. Uh, Doctor slash attorney Bill Burns, uh, he played it up to a high degree as a lawyer that uh, this would be irrefutable proof in a court of law. But uh, I just wanted to get back to uh, James Bagaha at one point, uh, whose position to this day is that there are no legitimate witnesses to anything. Not just Roswell, not just UFOs, but to anything. There's no such thing as a trained observer who is qualified to then represent what they observed as far as the historic record. But he is the lone qualified individual in the world. He has gone so far as to say that. And uh, Tom and I debated him on a, a radio interview a number of years ago and uh, would not even allow us to get in a rebuttal or respond to anything he said. But let's, play, let's put him in, uh, in his place once and for all. I debated him at a skeptics conference, PSYCOP, their annual conference, Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the Paranormal. And we went on for about an hour, and he finally stood up, and he yelled out to his own peers, I've had enough. Anyone who would suggest that the United States government has ever perpetrated a cover-up has another thing coming. And his own peers laughed at him, and wow. he stormed off the stage. I think I think Don re remembers uh, we did the uh, Montel Williams uh, show. This is uh, I forget which book it was of ours that had come out, and we thought, oh, you, you know, Montel wants to, you know, he's going to ask us about the uh, our book, and uh, you know, just like you are, and uh, so we go on, and his, his first question is, how is knowing what happened to Roswell going to help me? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, is it truth? Truth will set you free is, you know, the way I look at it. But uh, he says it's not going to help put uh, uh, meat on the table or, you know, what was it? Yeah, I'm thinking, where is this guy meat going? Meat on my plate, meat on my plate, yeah. And uh, so he was totally uh, contentious with us. And, um, you know, we're thinking, what have we got here? We thought he was going to actually want to know about our book. Well, he uh, cuts us off, and they and we're off the show. And he and the next guest is uh, this Magaha fellow. We had no idea he was coming on. Uh, we demanded a rebuttal or some sort of uh, to get back on the show, and, uh, and they they never would uh, let us uh, rebut uh, this Magaha fellow. And it turned out, unknown to us, that the show that day was about dispelling. Uh, False conspiracies. We had we never knew that. We thought they just wanted to talk about our book, but it was all a setup to get this Magaha fellow to come in and administer the coup de gras. And uh, we never we never uh, did the the uh, Montel Williams show again. They wouldn't let us on. That is truly unfortunate because I'm a person who believes in a good debate. I like to be open-minded. I insist upon it for myself that I remain open-minded because I think cynical.
cynicism is one of the worst attitude, attitudes you can take. And I freely admit that I have become cynical over the years about any number of things. And it's not a healthy way to go. So I like to keep an open mind. I also realize that there is a high potential for disappointment. One of the greatest examples being the morning that I called up, I felt truly privileged. The late, great Stanton Friedman made his time available the very morning, within hours, of the very controversial and much-discussed ABC special, primetime special on the UFO phenomenon. And I called up. I was working as an overnight producer at another station in Seattle. And I got Stanton Friedman on the phone, and I said, Mr. Friedman, how are you feeling this morning? And he said, I'm mad as hell. I said, mad as hell? I mean, that was, wow, I really thought that was a fantastic thing that you get a network special on ABC. Peter Jennings was the host of it. I thought that was pretty terrific. And he said, I gave them so much material that never made it. It was very persuasive material, very evidential, and it hit the cutting room floor. And he added that they never sent back the material to him, though it was loaned to the network and not given. So when I look at a situation like that, I, I go, I, I could make room for skepticism. That's healthy there. But when it turns into this kind of sideshow, a kind of carnival approach to something as mysterious as the UFO phenomenon, I think there's a lot of foul play involved. Well, we I think that was wasn't that the 2005 uh, yes, UFO? Yes. We, we spent yes. five. We, we spent four days in the field filming with uh, Jennings Production Company. And we offered them all types of witnesses. They were not interested in speaking to anyone with 1947 eyewitness testimony. Uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14, was there with us. They would not even talk to him. And they didn't talk they, to Edgar Mitchell? Wow. They would not That's even interview Mitchell. Wow. They then, then was what, done. Don, I'm what? sure Don remembers this. Is uh, I'm looking at this producer and I'm saying this guy doesn't believe anything. Doesn't believe anything we're saying. You, you know they have that look that uh, I hear yes. you, but I, I don't believe this. <laughs> and, well, we insisted uh, that they go out to the debris field, to the debris slash crash site, and they did that, albeit reluctantly. And then all they did was joke about it. It was a week before the program aired, they contacted Stan as well as us about any old footage we could provide them. The old B-roll. Didn't matter what network. So what you actually saw that night was nothing, not a single second of what they spent four days filming. It was CBS. It was ABC. It was BBC. It, had, it was not any ABC as far as Jennings. So that's he, how desperate they were to um, put the, the, uh, the Roswell section. He just declared it a myth, and a that myth. was it. No, right. no In explanation, no support. It. Just said it's a myth. Next, uh, let's talk about something else. And I'm thinking, what? Right. You know, because up to that point in the show, I thought they did a fairly good job. So I figured, okay, they're going to do a good job on uh, Roswell, but. Uh, it took about 30 seconds. He, uh, Peter Jennings declared it a myth, and they moved on to the next uh, section. None of the stuff that we had uh, shown them take. We spent uh, a lot 
lot of hours with them, and uh, none of it none of it made the show. Here's a little anecdote, and our listeners will find this interesting. And Tom, I, I want to let you know that I spoke with Don Schmidt about the experience of being out there in Roswell, their off-air, and what Donald Schmidt told me, I thought this was just fascinating, was that there was a, a lady there, young lady, a production assistant, who had some people gathered around her who were Roswell locals. They knew the story. Some of them knew a person. If they weren't directly involved, they certainly were intimately aware of the details of the Roswell incident. And this young lady, according to Don's account of it, told them at one point, well, you know, you need this around here. You don't really have anything around there. And she's from New York City, okay? So she's saying around <laughs> here, you don't really have anything. So you need something like this to just, you know, give you a sense of meaning and purpose and get people out here. And what Don Schmidt said to me was, that young lady got a four-year education in about five minutes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then was that the, uh, was that the, uh, person on the uh, production staff of the Jennings show yes yes yeah I know who he's I know who he's talking about uh, we tried to educate her and you know she had that same look like I'm I'm not believing any of this but nevertheless we you know we wrote we told them the what you know about the case of that uh, we had no idea that they were going to just uh, really ignore it like the way they did. So we gave, we gave them our best shot, and uh, they didn't they didn't use any of it. I guess they didn't use any of Stan's either. So no, because well, Stan was was with us. So in fact, um, all of the interview time was shared with Stan you, as well, and that's where that's why he was so upset. When, when I don't you think, think of, did, when I don't you, think Stan went out to the site. Did, no, did he, I no, don't, no. I, I don't remember him out there. No, he was not out at the site. No. When you think about it all these years later, did it, I mean, it sounds like a setup, but I'm wondering if anybody at any level wanted to take it seriously and the people who were involved in the production didn't, or if they said uh, right from the outset, this is something that we want to uh, debunk, so... You know, we'll do a show uh, and then prove that it never happened. Did you did you have a sense that at any level, it somebody was truly interested, or did it seem like it was a setup right from the get go? I think it goes both ways. We've dealt with both situations in that they will put up a front that they're going to treat it fairly, legitimately. And then you see the finished product, and you go, my God, uh, I didn't say that, or I'm taken out of context. Or I, I think a wonderful example would be years ago on the old TBS Nova program. And it was one of the last interviews that Dr. Heineck did. And uh, they totally edited him out, claiming that, as one of the Nova producers said, he was a senile old man. Mm. And our chief investigator at that time was Alan Hendry at the Center for UFO Studies. And so he was the primary fixture representing us on the show. Well, wouldn't you know it, they inserted different questions to the answers he provided to make him come across as a complete skeptic. 
So to suggest wow. that that was uh, serendipitous, no, that was uh, they had an agenda, and it was to paint us as essentially a bunch of kooks. When we did CBS 48 Hours, the producer had actually made the comment in Albuquerque about the kooks down in Roswell. And when I learned about that, she got an education as well, to the point that I was going to go right up to her executives in New York and pull the plug, and nobody was going to talk to them, and then they wouldn't have a show. So That's we learned to play hardball with these people because there is a, to begin with, a level of arrogance. And as, you know, especially where I live in Wisconsin, we're flyover country. They look down on us, like, and they especially look down on the people in New Mexico as people who don't know one end of a rifle from the other. And when, we are the first ones to, to defend them. When it comes to Dr. Heineck, who uh, died of cancer some years ago, I recall reading that when he was on his deathbed, and this is poignant, when he was on his deathbed, I presume his family was gathered around him, including his wife, he said, or is quoted as saying, even now, they won't share the truth with me. And I thought, you can pour your whole life into a subject like ufology, and maybe with particular regard to the UFO phenomenon. And there are people in high places with lots of power, lots of influence, who will see to it that the facts do not come out. And one of the chief victims of that mentality was Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And see, Heineck, who had consulted with Blue Book for almost 20 years, and he felt he deserved some answers because, as we mentioned earlier, uh, he basically was shut out. He was prevented from having access to the truth. And so when they had the congressional hearings or the, the, the beginnings of some congressional uh, testimony in Washington, and the very person who introduced Dr. Jalen Hynek on the floor of Congress was none other than his own congressman at that time, Donald Rumsfeld. <sighs> so Rumsfeld then goes on to be Secretary of Defense with the Ford administration and then later with the George W. Bush administration. And Hynek happened to be in Washington during the Ford administration. And he thought he would stop by and actually meet with his representative once again. And he's sitting with Rumsfeld, and he says to him, I've given 20 years of my life to the government, and I've received nothing in return. I believe I deserve some answers. And according to Heineck, Rumsfeld got up from behind his desk, walked over, stood over him, pointed his finger in his face, and said, you have no right to know. So, so much for, uh, you know, there's nothing there. There's nothing to discuss. Uh, there is no UFO phenomenon. Well, then what do, you, what do you have no right to know? What do we have no right to know as far as the government is concerned? There must be something to know because their position is we don't have any right or any business knowing. That's utter nonsense, too. I mean, it, I just refuse to believe what, which means only that I refuse to believe it. But having had an interest in this since the 1960s, there, uh, my, my tentative conclusion, because I do have to keep an open mind, or I'm making a hypocrite of myself. But my feeling is that the 
it's it's what my friend Peter Davenport of the UFO Reporting Center once said holds true. He said it's not just that there's a mountain of evidence. There is a mountain range of evidence demonstrating the validity of the UFO phenomenon as representing extraterrestrial visitation of our planet from God knows where, places unknown. And he is very firm in that. I had discussions with him, deep conversations, as well as with others, and these interviews, and all the programming, and all the books I've read. I just don't think there is a credible case against the hypothesis that we have been visited countless times, but especially in terms of Roswell, by extraterrestrial visitors for purposes best known to themselves. And the other thing I concluded is that you can come from another star system. You can come from perhaps another galaxy or a distant point of the Milky Way. Either way, you can't always beat a summer thunderstorm in New Mexico, no matter how advanced your technology. You know, the, uh, uh, I, I, I believe, they, you know, they, they've somehow they've solved the space-time continuum. Because, you know, by uh, our standards, uh, it's, you just can't get to the next planet outside of our solar system uh, in a reasonable amount of time. So they've somehow they've, they've solved the space-time continuum, and I don't pretend to know how, but my feeling is if they can, if they can uh, come from another solar system, they can also come from another galaxy. And, I, and the reason I say that is uh, uh, the, the last uh, uh, event down in Roswell where Stan Friedman uh, – Attended. I guess that's about two or three years ago. That'd be two uh, years I ago. Said, coming up, yeah. Uh, I made that statement, and I said uh, that you know they came could come from another galaxy, and he goes, "Oh no, that's it, just stick to the solar system." So I felt I felt that I had been chastised <laughs> by Stan, and uh, I said, oh, "Okay, okay," but. I do feel that if if they you know solved it for the you know other solar systems within our own Milky Way galaxy, they certainly uh, I don't think would be limited to, to just uh, the Milky Way galaxy and uh, other galaxies. They would use the well whatever whatever the procedure is that they use to make the jump, uh, they can do it uh, uh, as you know to any distance. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell you why I agree with you about that, Tom. And some time ago, years ago, um, since I've known Gary, I finally heard something that made a complete and utter sense to me, and that is uh, the time frame from us going from Kitty Hawk to landing on the moon, from from the two men on a bicycle who stayed up for a few seconds to our landing on the moon was a very brief period of time. And so uh, if time did not begin in, with us, which is completely ridiculous, there would be other planets, other civilizations that may be, oh, a thousand years ahead of us. Okay, how about 10,000 years? How about 100,000 years? How about a million how about a million years? And so, of course, they know things that we don't know. Of course, they're more advanced than we are. We, we're, we're thinking that there's another planet that was started when ours was started and human beings were started when we started. That That's completely nonsensical. You know, the, the, uh, 
our sun is considered a middle-aged star, meaning that there's stars that are younger and stars that are older. Well, how about some of those stars that are older by, uh, uh, you know, several million or hundreds of millions of years, uh, and they had planets, you know? Uh, And the way I look at it, uh, in the universe, not only just on Earth, but using Earth as an example, I believe life is the norm rather than the exception. Because you go go down into the deepest uh, parts of the Earth, the Marianas Trench, way down there, there's life down there. There's life down there. So I I think life is the norm rather than the exception. And you get a planet that's a million, two, three, four, ten million Hundred million years older than the Earth, it makes sense to me that uh, they would certainly be uh, advanced far beyond what uh, we are right now. So I have no right any problem with that. We're on the same page, absolutely. And in, included in their knowledge of applied physics, there would there would have to be a tremendous leap ahead of where we are in evolutionary terms for their minds to understand systems of propulsion when you're talking about such unimaginable distances. Well, Don can tell you that uh, at least with the Roswell case, uh, we had a witness uh, who passed away recently, but uh, before he passed, uh, he was one of the first-hand witnesses uh, who was in the hangar when that all that wreckage come in, came in. And he said, I was there, and this strange thing was that there wasn't a moving part on the on the vehicle there was not a moving part so you know it makes you know wow what made it go then you know so See, we uh, always we always use the term finding the on button and the thought being that you know just if we could take something as simple as a, a toaster oven and teleport it back in time say to the middle ages and they might be able to take it apart, put it back together again, but if they can't plug it in, they can't get it to work. So I don't even believe they'd have to be a million or a thousand. Just imagine a technology even a hundred years ahead of us, when, as Suzanne was describing, what we alone have accomplished in the past 50. I mean, is anyone is willing to you know, take a, a, a stab at where we're going to be in the next 25 ourselves? That's very well that's if said. That's still here, right? We're still here. That's, if we manage to keep the planet alive, that's for sure. I've often said <laughs> that when you look at the time between Kitty Hawk and the Sea of Tranquility is just under 70 years. So if that's the case, okay, then uh, this is us doing this. So if you have an advanced race, and I like to use the benchmark of 100,000 years. It's arbitrary. But I'll say, let's say they're 100,000 years ahead of us. <laughs> How much more are they I mean, going to know about interstellar space travel, they're going to have that down pat compared to us. And still we have this undeniable compulsion to reach the stars, to continually seek out, if not manned expeditions, which will happen anyway, then we have our technology with the satellites and the deep space probes. It's apparently a part of sentient life. And I've always found that fascinating. Let's also keep in mind that the entire space program has practically been on hold for almost 50 years. Yes. That they had fully intended that we would have a manned mission to Mars as we did to the moon by 1970. Mars was going to be the next accomplishment, and that was going to be by 1980. And then to pull out articles and to see even in the mid 80s, they were planning and they were designing as far as just huge 
rockets that were going to propel us all the way to Mars at that time. And we have barely scratched, you know, that mission since. So, yes. you know, and I've heard, you know, when I would talk to Edgar Mitchell, and he would talk, but just imagine where we would be today if the space program would have continued unabated, if, that, if things would have been full speed ahead, and who knows, we might be beyond our own solar system right now. Yes, especially with the march of technology being what it is. It just, the pace is so rapid. I wanted to ask you, gentlemen, for, and our listeners are aware now that we've blown off a break there because this is very important. It's compelling stuff, and we're going to do without the commercial break. I wanted to get a story reported by Don and then one by Tom. So making best use of our time since we're a little more than 10 minutes from the end of our show. It's been flying by at warp speed there. Don, would you start by telling us, and then I want to get this other story about another player in the whole drama of Roswell. But uh, people are wondering, okay, Gary, you brought up this thing about Walter Hott and his affidavit. It was sealed until his death. What is so all-fired important about this affidavit? What did he know, and why did he delay its release until after his death? Would you tell us about that, Donald? Well, I don't believe anybody worked harder on trying to get Walter Hott put together a final statement than Tom and myself. Every time we were with him, every time we were in New Mexico, we made it a point to sit down with Walter Hott because he was the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard's favorite son at that time. Not only was he his public information officer, but he was like an uncle as far as to Walter at that time. In fact, when Blanchard died at his desk at the Pentagon, they didn't just call Walter in Roswell. They didn't just send a, uh, a telegram. They sent a special courier to inform him of the, the four-star general's passing, General uh, William Blanchard. So we just couldn't believe that Walter was shielded from all things Roswell at that time, that his best friend, his commander, would have taken him under wing and would have shown him, would have told him certain things. And so through the years, Walter would break down. He would say things. We would even kind of trick him into admitting certain things. One day we were sitting in his office, and I, uh, in the middle of a conversation, I said, Walter, how tall did Butch, who he affectionately called Blanchard, how tall did Butch tell you the bodies were? And from his elbow, he shot out just a little bit above his shoulder. And then he gave me a look like, you no good. You know. But I got him. But I got him. And we, we, it's not like we were trying to trick him as much as Walter. We know you know. And so little by little and piece by piece and hour by hour, we got him to put together. And we assisted in putting it together. And then he read it and line for line. And as his daughter, uh, the late Judy, uh, Julie Schuster, uh, wrote a statement and on his behalf said if there would have been a single word that he would not have approved of, he would have never signed it. And he signed it. I mean, it was his final statement as far as that he not only witnessed the, the, the debris, the wreckage, but the craft and the bodies which were recovered. And apparently the gathering and the handling of the bodies themselves. Absolutely. And in fact, he had been out to the crash site he had pieces right in his office that he displayed to others. 
he was allowed by Blanchard to go to the hangar, which Tom had mentioned, uh, Building 84 P3 back at that time, where he witnessed uh, the remains of the craft, described it as about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, more egg-shaped, and then the bodies that were lying on uh, the concrete floor. Wow. Now let's pivot to Tom. The lieutenant governor of New Mexico in 1947 had a last name of Montoya that became well-known politically in New Mexico, as Tom can describe it. So on a certain day in 1947, Tom, Lieutenant Governor Montoya was in town thinking he was going to experience one thing and he experienced another. You wrote that part of the book, Witness to Roswell. Tell us the story, please. Yes, uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Joseph Little Joe Montoya uh, was in Roswell uh, to uh, dedicate an airplane, something like that, at the base. So while he was out there at the base, uh, he, he had a lot of uh, supporters uh, called Montoyistas, young, uh, young uh, uh, Montoya supporters uh, over at the hangar, P3, Building 84 today. So he went over there just as the bodies and the wreckage were coming into the base. So he's over there, and he sees, he sees the, especially the bodies. It just it, it blew his mind. It blew his mind. And uh, two of his supporters, he, he called he called up uh, two of his re, uh, supporters, uh, Reuben and Pete Anaya, li, who lived in Roswell. And he says, "Come quick, get me, got to get get me out of here. You got to get me out of here. I'll meet you at the hang at the uh, water tower, which was near the hangar." And so uh, Pete, uh, he was a uh, he worked at the NCO club there, so he had a sticker on his. A window of his car, so they were got through the main gate and went over to the water tower, and they picked up uh, Joseph Montoya. He says, "Okay, let's let's get out of here," and uh, he. So they drive to Pete's house, and all on the way, Montoya is rocking back and forth in the back seat. They weren't human. They weren't human. They weren't human. He's he's lost it, <laughs> and 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 as Pete said, he he said. He was he was wacko. That's the term he used. He said he was whacked, and so they got to Pete's house, and uh, Montoya lays down on the couch. He says, "Oh, get me something to drink. Get me something to drink." And so they brought in a uh, you know a shot glass of Jim Beam, and one quick gulp, and it's down. He says, "That's not that's not enough. I need more." <laughs> so they brought the bottle out, and uh, the way Pete described it, he said it was bam, 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 <laughs> and he drank the whole bottle. And then he 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 uh, uh, fell into a fitful sleep. They said he was he was asleep, knocked out on the couch, but he was very fitful. He kept uh, twitching and like as if he wasn't comfortable. And finally, uh, he woke up and told him what he saw. He said the the uh, 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 he called the flying saucer and plata a, 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 pla- a plate. And so he told them the whole story. He said uh, they, they were not from here. They're not from Earth. They're not human, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, Joe Montoya goes on to become a uh, U.S. senator from New Mexico uh, in 1964. 
and I think he la- he he lasted I don't know ten years or about ten years or more. But uh, uh, we interviewed. The Anaya brothers, uh, Ruben died first. We we uh, interviewed him in 1997, somewhere around there. And Pete, uh, we interviewed Pete and his wife Mary in 2002 for the sci-fi special, uh, The Roswell Crash, Startling New Evidence. And he told the whole story. And while while they're filming Pete, I'm talking to, to Pete's son, John, uh, John Anaya, who was a staffer for uh, Joe Montoya when he was a senator in Washington? So uh, Anaya's son was a staffer. I said, "Hey, uh, have you? Did you ever talk to the senator about this? Uh, his experience at Roswell?" He said, "Oh yes, yes. He told me about it." I said, "What well, did he? What did he say?" He said, "Well, it was all true. Well, what I just told you was all true." But he told John. He said, "But if you ever tell anybody, I'll deny it." So. Uh, that's uh, that was it. He he would uh, never speak publicly about it, but he told confidants about it, uh, including you know the Anaya brothers and uh, uh, the Anaya brothers' son, uh, Pete Anaya's son, uh, John. And uh, I said, "Did you believe him?" He said, "Of course." And uh, so that's basically the story. Uh, uh, most people don't know that we we have it written up in the book uh, quite. Uh, detailed more than I just gave you, but uh, it's quite a story. He was uh, pretty near the only uh, person of uh, high rank in New Mexico at the time. Everybody else, uh, starting with the base commander at Roswell, he all got out of town, or as they as they say in the old west, they got out of Dodge. And yes, so uh, Anaya found himself to, to be the highest ranking person in New Mexico at the time, and he just happened to be on the base at Roswell, where he met uh, Destiny. He met Destiny, indeed. Thank you, gentlemen, for those two stories. People ask me, why do I believe in this? This is why, and so much more like it as it comes to light, a real revelation. We have about two minutes, gentlemen, so tell us what you're working on now. This is what we call the marketing piece. And what your website is and where people can get the book. Well, our, our website uh, is www.roswellinvestigator.com, and uh, we, we have been busy the last year and a half. In uh, 2019, our book, UFO Secrets, I'm holding it right in my hand so I get the title right, <laughs> UFO Secrets Inside Wright-Patterson, Eyewitness Accounts from the Real Area 51. That book came out last year. Uh, we have a book that just came out now. It's a, a coffee table picture book uh, called Roswell, the Chronological Pictorial. It's got over 400 pictures. Uh, we describe the timeline from beginning uh, to end, uh, from 1947 up to the present, uh, with uh, pi- pictures the whole way. And uh, it brings the Roswell case to life. It should be the companion of every Roswell book ever written. And that one just came out basically last week. We did the final edits on it. And uh, we have a book coming out uh, next year. Don Don can tell you about that. No, we actually have a book coming out in uh, in June. Oh, I'm sorry, this year. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. As far 15 as Roswell, seconds, real quick, Don. Roswell, the ultimate cold case closed. 
So in other words, uh, we're wrapping up the case. We believe we're going to get a copy of that book. Don, uh, Thomas J. Carey, Donald R. Schmidt, you guys are the best. They're in the case of both these books. Count on us to call you up for an interview, and we will go thoroughly through them and with much delight. We so enjoy having you both on the air. Thank you both for being with us today. Thank you, Paul. We'll do it again. Thank you. Wonderful. Stay tuned, everybody. Christine Upchurch has special guests. She does, and you'll find out who they are in just a few minutes. On the other side of NBC News. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.